Well, thank you, Jim and Alex. Uh, Stom Brace, great to have a father-son team share music with us this morning. Uh, that was a fun thing to watch and a thrill. Thank you. Well, the summer I turned 15, uh, I fell in love. Now, this is the full 10 years before I met the true love of my life, my wife, Lorene, who's not here this morning. She's giving announcements at Kesslinger campus. Uh, and it was only puppy love, but at the time, it, it seemed real to the puppy. Uh, I spent a week at a Christian youth camp that summer um, that included kids from all parts of the country. And while I was there, just for that one week, I met a young lady who was from a different state, different church, and kind of a, you know, a friendship slash sort of romance uh, began, uh, at least for me. Uh, it was very innocent and platonic, but at 15, you know, platonic was better than nothing, so um, that was pretty exciting. And at the end of the week, uh, I went back to my home in New York. She went back to hers in Ohio. And we both knew we'd probably never see each other again, but we made fervent promises to write. You remember letters? <laughs> remember letters? At the end of the week, um, or uh, before there was email, before there was texting, before there was, you know, Facebook and Insta this and Insta that, there was mail, real three-dimensional mail. Um, written on real paper and, and real envelope and real human handwriting. Uh, and getting a letter meant something. Getting a letter meant that someone took the time and the effort to actually put their thoughts down on paper with a pen uh, to uh, address and stamp the envelope and then go and put it in the mailbox and send it to you. And so the summer I turned 15, I discovered the power and uh, wonder of letters. The week after camp ended, um, I remember getting very uh, concerned about the U.S. postal system. Uh, and I remember uh, figuring out exactly what time it would arrive at our house. And I would try to be, every day, the first one at the mailbox just checking to see if the mail came because if I was going to check to see if something came for me. And finally, one day, uh, when I checked the mailbox, there was a plain white envelope in there with uh, my name on it and a return address from Ohio clearly written in female penmanship. Uh, I had my first ever letter. So I wrote back, and then another letter came, and after that, sometimes uh, more than one would come in a week, all summer long, and I kept those letters piled up in a secret place in my room, mainly so my brother or my mom wouldn't find them. So that was where I could go to read, read and reread these letters. Uh, and, but toward the end of the summer, uh, this is maybe a whole series of maybe five or six weeks, but toward the end of the summer, the letters began to slow down in their frequency. And finally, there was a letter in which this young lady casually mentioned her new boyfriend. <laughs> and that was that, uh, at least for that particular puppy. Uh, and today we look at a different kind of letter. Uh, it's an ancient letter. It's a different kind of letter, but it's also a love letter if we understand it correctly. We continue our series uh, from the book of Revelation called Seven. We're talking about the seven churches of Revelation. And so far, we've seen that Revelation is, in fact, an ancient letter written by, most likely, the Apostle John. And it was, the content was delivered to him in a supernatural way from the Lord Jesus himself. It was written to encourage followers of Jesus living in the Roman Empire in the late first century who were living in a, in a world and a culture that was increasingly hostile toward them. And we've seen so far that the book of Revelation uh, reveals none other than Jesus himself. 
Last week, Pastor Andrew uh, gave us this look into John's vision, this majestic picture of the risen and exalted Christ, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash, hair white like snow, eyes like fire, feet like burnished bronze, a voice like the roar of many waters, a sharp sword coming out of his mouth, his face shining like the sun. That was last week at the end of chapter 1. A vision so overwhelming, so magnificent, so uh, spectacular, and so holy that John says his reaction was to fall as though dead before this picture of Christ. And so it's that Jesus, the risen and glorified Christ, who now dictates the first letter to John to write down and give to the churches. So we'll jump into Revelation chapter 2. Uh, verse 1 today. Let me read this for you. John writes, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Let me just pause there and talk about the angel of the church just for a second. Uh, we are always fascinated uh, whenever the word angels pops up in the Bible. Uh, there are lots of popular culture uh, uh, depictions of angels and so forth. Uh, but in the Bible, angels are simply messengers. They're supernatural messengers that God uses to deliver his message to people. Uh, some think here Jesus is suggesting that every individual church has their own individual angel. That would be uh, possible, but it's not likely because that doesn't show up anywhere else in Scripture. Some think this refers to the Holy Spirit himself, and, and Jesus is using the word angel for the Holy Spirit. Uh, some others think he's referring to those who deliver the message to the church, to pastors and elders and leaders. We don't really know, but we do know what's important is that the message is more important than the messengers. And so we continue. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now there are three things here in this introduction. First, Jesus is identifying himself as the one who um, holds the seven stars and the seven and walks among the seven lampstands. Now, what does that mean? Last week, Pastor Andrew pointed out that in Revelation 1, verse 20, Jesus himself explains, as for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Remember, we've said so far that the seven churches refer to seven literal historical churches in Asia Minor in the first century, but they also refer to the church, capital C, throughout all ages, including where we are today, Chapel Street Church, here in the 21st uh, century. Second notice, Jesus is identifying himself as the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Jesus is saying he is present to his church that he is with his church, and that he knows his church. I walk among the lampstands, he says. That'll be important in just a moment. And thirdly, Jesus is addressing this particular letter to the church in Ephesus. So let's just take a brief look at the ancient city of Ephesus. You can see from the map here that it's located on the western coastline of what we would call Turkey today. You can see the Mediterranean Sea there and its relationship to where Jerusalem would have been and to where Rome is in the top left. Ephesus at the time was the most important city in the Roman province of Asia and one of the most significant cities in the entire ancient world. It had, had a population of somewhere between a quarter million and a half million people, which was a huge city in those days. Its location right on the coast made it a hub of commerce and trade, and thus Ephesus was an affluent city. 
think something like Los Angeles or New York in our culture. Uh, and I've had the chance to visit uh, the site of ancient Ephesus a couple of times. And even though uh, the ruins of Ephesus today are over 2,000 years old, even the ruins are magnificent. The city boasted hundreds of marble columned buildings. Like this is the great library of Celsus, it's called, which at the time contained over 12,000 scrolls. Uh, the Romans were also known for, known for their building of roads. And you can still see something of the beauty of the streets of Ephesus. Uh, in, this is called Curitus Street. It was named after the priests of the goddess Artemis. Uh, and it led straight down to the harbor where all the boats would have been. We'll talk more about Artemis and the harbor a little bit later. Ancient Romans were also uh, capable of impressive feats of engineering. For example, there was a, a system of underground moving water that was a sanitation system. And it doesn't take an archaeologist to figure out what we're looking at right here. You've got to look kind of carefully. It's true, uh, which means I have actually been where the Apostle Paul might have been at one time or another. It was a city of great economic and social significance. And it was actually here that the Apostle Paul planted a church and stayed there for three years. You can read about it in the book of Acts. So he stayed there for three years to teach, to pastor, and to lead. And he was joined by, at different times, such notable leaders as Timothy, Apollos, possibly Luke, and then the Apostle John himself. Likely the most influential church in the world at the time. And to them, we're going to find Jesus says three things. And this follows a pattern we're going to see as he speaks to the other churches over the next few weeks. Jesus commends... And then he confronts, and then he corrects and comforts. So let's jump in again, Revelation 2, beginning in verse 2. This is Jesus speaking now. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the first thing we see is that Jesus commends the church in Ephesus. Uh, years ago, I remember going to, uh, driving to Omaha, Nebraska with two of my boys who were playing in a baseball tournament there. Uh, and the College World Series was going on at the same time, which is why they had the youth tournaments there. So it was a thrill to be able to uh, take my two younger boys to see some of the best players in college baseball play at a large stadium there in Omaha. And it was July, and it was really, really hot, uh, like 95 degrees hot, humid. And so as we approached the stadium, uh, we noticed there was a kind of booth set up right outside the entrance, and people were just handing out uh, free cold bottles of water to anybody who wanted them, to fans entering the stadium. So we were hot, and we were thirsty, so we walked up to the booth. And I noticed then that the booth had a sign over it for a local church in the area. And then every bottle had a little uh, uh, label on it, 
uh, that was naming that church and sort of inviting you to join them sometime. And I realized what they were doing. This was an outreach effort by a local church just handing out cold water to baseball fans that were seeking to reach out to, uh, to serve uh, and to reach out to uh, maybe unbelieving, unchurched people. And I thought that was pretty cool. So as a nice young man handed me a bottle of water, I said to him, hey, I'm a, I'm a pastor in Illinois, and I just think what you're doing is great. Thanks for doing this. And then he looked back at me with a look like, well, that's a wasted bottle, you know. <laughs> I felt like I should give it back to him. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. First thing I want you to notice is what Jesus notices. You know, he doesn't talk about their beautiful buildings or their, their beautiful music or worship styles, their state-of-the-art technology, but he talks about deeper things. He says, I know you. I am the one who walks among the lampstands, who walks among my churches. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. He says, I know you are a church of hard work. Now, the word translated works here uh, points to the things they were doing. And then the word toil refers to sort of the cost or effort that it takes to do those things. Now, we aren't told exactly what the works of the church in Ephesus were at the end of the first century, but I think we can make uh, sort of educated guesses. For example, I think if if the Lord were to walk through Chapel Street and then send us a letter, he might say something like, I saw your many programs. I saw all the things you are doing for children, for women. I saw all your, your Bible studies and your mission trips. I saw the work you do through your Shepherd's Heart ministry. And I know it takes a commitment of time and energy and resources to do these things. And he would commend us for our work and our toil. I believe he would, as he does the ancient church in Ephesus. Next, he commends them for being a church of faithful endurance. Now, the phrase patient endurance comes from a great Greek word, hupomone, which carries the meaning of steadfastness under opposition. We see it throughout the New Testament. So we might ask ourselves, what were they enduring? Specifically, what was their opposition? Here we have to remember uh, the context of the late first century in the Roman Empire. These early Christians were extreme minorities in that world. Imagine a city like Chicago, which today has approximately 10,000 churches in the city of Chicago. Imagine that there was only one, one church in the entire Chicagoland area, and in it only 100 or 200 people, and surrounded by a sea, a culture, Uh, that was hostile toward them. They faced opposition of an increasingly dangerous culture. First, there was the growing cult of what was called emperor worship. By the late first century, Roman emperors had been declared divine, uh, and citizens were expected to venerate or worship at shrines or or, uh, statues and to affirm the statement, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And this actually had economic impact. So imagine again, if Chicago uh, was like that, there was one church, uh, but that citizens were required 
to put little statues of the mayor in front of their homes or in front of their places of business so people knew they could go there because they were being blessed by Caesar, who was Lord. And if you didn't have one of those, people wouldn't even use your business. That was what was happening in the late first century. So they faced both personal and economic discrimination and suspicion. They were seen as traitors to Rome because they wouldn't participate. And the emperor at the time was a man named Domitian who referred to himself as master and God. Secondly, Ephesus was also an entirely pagan city filled with many pagan uh, deities and rituals. But the crown jewel of them all was the great temple of Artemis in Ephesus. Now, Artemis was the goddess of fertility, uh, and her temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In its heyday, the temple of Artemis boasted 117 marble pillars, each 60 feet tall. So imagine. And it covered an area larger than a football field. And today, all that remains, interestingly, of that temple is one single column that's put together from the remnants of other columns. You might remember in Acts chapter 19, the story where Paul is preaching in Ephesus, and many are coming to faith in Jesus, and they're throwing away their idols. They're getting rid of their idols of Artemis. And this threatened certain pagan practices, and it threatened those who made their living from making and selling these idols. Uh, and a riot broke out against Paul that day. This mob dragged him to the great theater of Ephesus, and hostile crowds began chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And Paul would have been uh, probably stoned to death right there unless a local official intervened and kept the crowd from killing him. And that theater, by the way, which seats 24,000 people at one time, is still there in ancient Ephesus. I've stood at the top of that. It's a, this is many people that fit in the United Center in Chicago, and they could hear a play without amplification, hear every word from the top of that. It's an amazing uh, piece of architecture. Oops, I got my missing page here. So it wasn't easy to be a Christian in Ephesus. It wasn't easy uh, to be the church in Ephesus. It was a dangerous place, but Jesus commends them for their endurance. And then we also notice he commends them for being a church of sound doctrine. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. And later, he says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So evidently, there were those who rose up in the church who began teaching false gospels. And actually, in Acts chapter 20, after Paul has been in Ephesus, built a church for three years, he's preparing to leave and move on to the next place, and he warns them of exactly this. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, one of these groups of false teachers were the Nicolaitans. Uh, historians believe these were probably followers of a Gentile convert uh, to the faith named Nicholas of Antioch, who uh, some scholars believe began to twist uh, the teaching of grace to sort of extreme levels, saying that uh, because of God's grace, what we did do in our bodies doesn't matter to him. It's only the spiritual uh, things that really matter, which opened the door 
for Christians to participate in all the immorality that was associated with the fertility cult of Artemis. And now, we don't have uh, a temple of Artemis today in our culture, but I think we see some of these same things happening. For example, uh, those who teach that God's design for the holiness of marriage is no longer relevant in the modern world. Some teach that right in the church. Or those who uh, teach that faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus is not necessary for salvation. That's being taught in some churches as well. So Jesus is commending the Ephesians for discerning correctly between truth and and error. And I think if Jesus looked at Chapel Street, I hope that if he looked at Chapel Street, he might say, I see your commitment to my word. I see your faithfulness to teach the truth of the gospel over against the prevailing winds of the culture in which you live. And all these things, Jesus is pleased. He commends the Ephesian church. I believe in the same way he would commend our local church. But then the tone of the letter changes. Jesus moves from commendation to confrontation. The second thing we see is Jesus confronts. Years ago, I heard this little story. Grandma and Grandpa were sitting on the porch in their rockers watching the beautiful sunset and reminiscing about the good old days when Grandma turned to Grandpa and said, Honey, do you remember when we first started dating and used to casually reach over and just take my hand? Grandpa looked over at her, smiled, and took her hand in his with a wry little smile, then Grandma pressed a little further. She said, Honey, you remember how after we were engaged, you'd sometimes lean over and sweetly kiss me on the cheek? Grandpa leaned slowly toward Grandma and gave her a little kiss on her cheek. Growing bolder still, Grandma said, Honey, do you remember how after we were first married, you'd kind of nibble on my ear? And then Grandpa slowly got up from his rocker and headed into the house. Grandma was alarmed and said, Honey, where are you going? He said, To get my teeth. I don't mean to strike close to home there. (laughs) Now, over the years, I've met with many, many couples, many, many couples for some degree of marriage, conversation, or even counseling. And in all those years, I've never met one couple that came to me when they were in trouble who said, you know, we fell in love, we got married, but all the way along, we planned that we would just slowly drift apart and then someday get divorced. Nobody says that. Nobody said. They all say the same thing. You know, we fell in love, we got married, and then somewhere along the way, we don't really know what happened, but we just sort of stopped loving each other. Verse 4. But I have this against you. Let me stop there for a moment. Can you imagine the impact of those words on this ancient church? These are words coming from Jesus, the one who died for them, the one who rose again, the one who sits on the throne of heaven, who has just commended them for their good works, commended them for their endurance, commended them for their uh, correct teaching, and he says, but I have this against you. I think it was pin drop silence. Pin drop silence. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus says you've abandoned the love you had at first. You have lost your first love. Now, If you're like me, you're thinking to yourself, how is that possible? How is it possible to work and serve and be correct in doctrine but lose love? 
How is it even possible? Well, Jesus here in this letter doesn't explain details. He doesn't exactly explain. But again, I think we can make some reasonably good guesses by looking at ourselves. A few things occurred to me. Maybe it was just complacency. Complacency. You know, it's like moving to the West Coast for the first time. You see the Pacific Ocean, and you're just overwhelmed uh, with the beauty and power of the sea as far as you can see. Then a week or two go by, and you're like, walk by, yeah, there's the ocean, yep. Mm -hmm. And then about a year later, you're like, you know, the water's so salty, sand gets everywhere, what a pain. Familiarity can breed complacency or even a kind of apathy or contempt. And actually, this may be one of the things that COVID has taught us as followers of Jesus, as members of his family. For months and months, not able to gather together, prohibited from gathering together. Months and months of us staring into a camera 60 feet away and imagining you're out there somewhere and you're not here, but then we were able to get together. We're here today. And many of you have told me, and I experienced it too, this powerful sense of how, how important it is, how good it is, it was emotional to hear singing and to hear being in the, in the company of other believers. Maybe we had taken it for granted before. I know in some ways I had. Maybe we appreciate more. Maybe they, the, the Ephesians had just grown a little complacent in their faith. Maybe they had begun to take for granted the love of Christ himself. John writes in 1 John chapter 4, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see that? Not that we loved God, but that he loved us first. I think John is saying here that the only way to lose our love for Jesus is to forget or take for granted his love for us. Charles Spurgeon, I actually saw Pastor Andrew posted this recently. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century British preacher, said, I shall never understand, even in heaven, why the Lord Jesus should have ever loved me. The wonder of Christ's love for us. We're going to talk more about that love in just a moment. Or maybe it was just ordinary busyness. You know how easy it is for us to allow the busyness of our lives to overwhelm the relationships of our lives. I remember years ago asking a high school student, um, wh when, how often his family had dinner every week together around the family table. He looked at me with kind of an odd look, and he said, uh, I don't remember the last time we had dinner together as a family. Perhaps the Ephesians had become so busy with their work, with the work of ministry, doing good things, that they began to love their work and their busyness more than Jesus himself. Or maybe a kind of uh, judgmentalism had crept in. Perhaps with their focus on correct doctrine, which is good. Perhaps that had led to a kind of um, legalism or a kind of judgmentalism or suspicion of each other. You know, I heard the other day that Sophia's husband put a little statue out in front of his business just to try to keep it going. I don't know about them. Maybe they shouldn't be welcome here anymore. And maybe that created a kind of loss of love within the body. In John 13, Jesus said, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Maybe the Ephesian church had drifted into a kind of spiritual pride, a, a kind of need to be right, a kind of self-righteousness. And I think sometimes we see the same thing today, a little bit different tone. I think we've seen 
that sometimes in the same church people will disagree about something like politics or some social issue, and that difference in opinion will create a breach in a Christian relationship. And I think Jesus would say that ought not be. You cannot lose your love for one another. And this loss of love then leads to a loss of effective ministry. Paul, in his famous words in 1 Corinthians 13 that we studied a few months ago, says, If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now what he's saying here is that without love, all our work, all our ministries become meaningless, worthless in his eyes. And if we take all this together, we understand what Jesus says next. Verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, a couple things here. Jesus has used this image of a lampstand before. If we go back to Matthew chapter (coughs) 5, excuse me, in the Sermon on the Mount, he writes, you... My followers are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the lampstand is a symbol of the witness of the church in the world. So perhaps Jesus is saying that they have lost their first love, their love for him, their love for each other, their love for their pagan neighbors, and the result is they have ceased to bear witness to the world around them. They had sound doctrine, they were busy doing good things, but they had lost the single most important thing to Jesus. They had lost their love, and therefore their light, and therefore their witness. So Jesus commends, Jesus confronts, and then finally we're going to see that Jesus corrects and comforts. Pick it up in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Jesus says, remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Uh, When Lorene and I were dating, I once drove uh, from Chicago to Orlando, Florida, which was 20 hours, stopping only for gas. Didn't sleep, didn't eat, stopped only for gas. Drove 20 hours just to surprise her for a couple hours. Now, 36 years later, it takes superhuman effort to get up and go empty the dishwasher, right? (laughs) There was a time when these Ephesian believers were overwhelmed by the love and grace of Jesus. They overflowed with worship and joy and love for one another and love for their neighbors. Jesus says, remember, remember that time, remember the beginning of faith. Remember when you first met my grace. Remember your baptism. Or remember from where you have fallen, he says. 
And next he says, repent. Repent and do the things you did at first. You know, repent is a word we don't use a whole lot anymore. And we really should use it more. It's a good word. The word repent means to experience a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of direction, to turn and go in the right direction. It means to turn around. And remember, Jesus here is speaking to his people. He's speaking to Christians. He's not speaking to pagans. Christians can repent because we too can drift and begin heading a different way. To repent is to hear the word, is to acknowledge the truth of the word, and then surrender to that word. Jesus says, remember and repent. And then comes a great promise of comfort. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the one who conquers. Now that word in Greek is nikao, which comes from the word Nike, which is the Greek word for victory. We see it on shoes all the time. Did you know that Nike company stole that word from the Greek, uh, Greek history, Greek language? It means victory. This is the word Paul uses in Romans chapter 8 when he writes, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You hear that? We are more than conquerors. How? We have final victory. How? Through the one who loved us. And then Jesus says, to the one who overcomes, to the one who prevails, to the one who repents and wins the battle against complacency, to the one who wins the battle against disillusionment, to the one who remembers and restores his or her first love, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. The tree of life. That should ring a bell. It's a dual reference. All the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3, this is the tree that stood in the middle of the Garden of Eden, the garden that was lost due to the fall into sin. And it's also looking ahead, jumping way ahead to Revelation chapter 22, when, when John writes this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I hope you recognize the imagery. This is John's vision into the new heaven and the new earth. This is the promise Jesus is giving his people. So what he's telling us is that Jesus is not finished with the Ephesian church. They're not perfect. They've fallen. They've drifted a bit, but he's not finished with them. He walks among them. He commends. He confronts. He corrects. And then he comforts. And I believe Jesus walks among his church today. I believe he walks among his church today. So, what happened to the great city of Ephesus? I don't know if that occurred to you. Why does it lie in ruins today? Magnificent ruins, but ruins. Nobody lives there. Well, there were attacks by enemy nations for sure, but the biggest reason is that the seacoast disappeared. The seacoast disappeared. 
Today, the coastline is six miles away to the west from the ancient ruins of Ephesus. What happened was, uh, over the decades and the centuries, the, the harbor was clogged with silt, clogged with silt and more silt and more silt until uh, Ephesus no longer had a harbor. They no longer had a coast. And when they had, did not have a harbor, they ceased to be a valuable trade route. And when they lost their relevance as a trade route, the city died. What Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus, what Jesus is saying to his church today, to us, is that when or if the church loses its first love, when we forget or take for granted the love of Jesus for us, when we lose our love for each other, when we lose our love for our neighbor, we lose our witness, we lose our lampstand, and when we lose our witness, the church begins to die. I think that's what he's saying. But he also says, if we remember, if we remember his love, if we repent, turn, and do the things we did at first, we become conquerors. Paul says, more than conquerors, we become the victorious ones, and we receive the promise of the tree of life. Jesus says simply, let him who has ears hear. Would you bow with me as I close? Lord Jesus, we thank you today for your word. We acknowledge that you are the one who walks among your church by your spirit. You know us. You know our works. You know our focus on your word and your truth, but you also know our hearts, Lord. And so we ask you to confront us when and if we forget or take for granted your great love for us. If we faltered in our love for you or for each other, or even in our love for our neighbor. Lead us to repentance or change of heart and fix our eyes, our hearts firmly on your love, your promise, and your victory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.